Hi there. You're listening to the Paralegals on Fire podcast show, where you'll be getting tips and actionable strategies that you can use right now to fast track your paralegal career. I'm your host, Ann Pearson, former paralegal and paralegal manager who left big law in the concrete jungle to start my own company, the Paralegal Bootcamp, where we give online courses that help paralegals make more money, increase their job security, and cut out the learning curve. All right, let's jump right into today's episode. Have you ever been inside a prison? I have. And let me tell you, they are just as scary and intimidating as they look in the movies. No, I wasn't an inmate. I was working on a pro bono case. If you haven't done any pro bono work as a paralegal, you could really be missing out. Now, I'm going back to the days when I was a litigation paralegal. I'd just come off of a big antitrust case that had lasted for many years. And in that case, we were working on huge volumes of documents. Every few weeks, we'd be producing or receiving 5,000, 10,000 boxes. Anyway, the case is over, and the partner in charge of that case was also the partner in charge of the firm's entire litigation department. He calls me in his office and says, There's a partner in the D.C. office who's requested help from a paralegal with experience working in very large, document-intensive cases. That's me. Sign me up. Back then, it was like a badge of honor among us paralegals. Hey, how many boxes were in that production? 450? Wow. Mine last week was 1,500 boxes. Someone else says, I've got one starting next week with 4,000 boxes. If you're listening and you were a paralegal in the 90s before e-discovery became mainstream, you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, this partner tells me that the DC partner was the head of the firm's pro bono department and I'd be the lead paralegal on a case involving a civil rights violation in Alabama prisons. But here was the catch. All of the documents that were being produced by the state's prison system, they weren't in some admin building in Birmingham. They were inside these file rooms that were inside various state prison locations throughout the state. And I was going to be in charge of reviewing them and identifying what we wanted to get copies of for the case. Sign me up. Again, (laughs) then he tells me, oh, and it's not a female prison. It's a male prison. Oh, and don't screw this up because this is an important case for the firm. Just because it's pro bono, don't cut any corners. Do the same great job that you did for me on this $250 million case that we just settled. No pressure. Fast forward a week in some phone conferences with our co-counsel at the legal aid organization that brought the firm in on the case and we're driving to Montgomery, Alabama for the first leg of what I was calling my tour of Alabama state prisons. Lucky for me, this first visit had one of the legal aid attorneys with me because she had some experience with this kind of stuff, and she prepped me a little bit on what I could expect. What she didn't prep me for is how, when you're entering any particular block in that prison, or any prison really, say you're entering it from another block or from an external door, There are two sets of bars, doors. They open one and they close it behind you and they don't open the next one until they get the signal from the guard on the floor that it's okay to open that one because they're opening it from up above. Makes sense if you think about it. If you were someone bad coming in or someone bad wanting to get out, you're stuck in this little six by six area until the guard signals to open up that other door. Well, then we get into the second 
cage area, I call it, this six by six or 10 by 10 area. I mean, honestly, it felt like a two by two area, but I think it was around six or 10 feet. So we get to the second cage area and there were a few prisoners in there getting their meds. I think we're going to wait outside that area until they were out, but nope. The guard who's with us signals to open the bars and we walk in and then they close behind us. Now, I don't know if the guard got distracted or if it was my nerves, but I'm in this cage area for what feels like an eternity. And inside my head, I'm literally screaming, guard, give them the signal, open the gate, get out of here, open the gate. Right about now, you might be saying to yourself, and you're not really making a great case for why I might want to do pro bono work. Stick with me. Because here's what I got out of that work. Which, by the way, if you look it up, it's not the ACLU lawsuit that came out later against the Alabama state prisons. This was earlier, like 2002. It was the Leatherwood case that got settled out of court. And then I think because things didn't change much, like the settlement was supposed to change things, but it didn't, I guess. That's what brought about the ACLU case and later a Department of Justice investigation. Okay, so... Back to some of the things that I got out of doing that pro bono work and why you might want to consider it too. Maybe not representing state prisoners, but pro bono work in general. What I got out of it is, and what I think that you could get out of it, you'll get exposure to cases and other types of work that are going to broaden your knowledge. Before that pro bono case, I'd only ever worked on complex commercial litigation cases like antitrust, securities, some construction litigation, you know, big like skyrise construction projects. And that gave me exposure to a civil rights case working in an area of law I'd never had any exposure to and wouldn't ever again. Number two, you get the opportunity to meet people you might otherwise have never met. There were attorneys and paralegals working for that outside organization, the attorneys in the other offices who were part of the pro bono committee within the firm, The prison guards in Alabama, which, by the way, as I'm in each of these prisons for eight hours a day, essentially reviewing these documents, sometimes I'd be there for two or three weeks at a time, depending on how many documents each prison had. So I'd be going in there every day like I would go into an office. A guard had to be with me at all times. And he'd sit at the doorway of the file room. He'd walk me to the restroom. He'd have to walk me out at night. And I remember one of them in particular who seemed very irritated initially at me, you know, that he was being put on guard duty. A few days in, we developed enough of a rapport where he's telling me stories about his daughter's horse show over the weekend and all kinds of things. So I can add that to my resume after that experience that I'm, quote, maybe well-versed in developing good rapport with prison guards. Okay, maybe not. (laughs) All right, number three. If you work at a firm like I did that truly valued pro bono time, then you get credit for that time as billable time. I mean, that firm, the one I worked at, it had an entire pro bono department where those attorneys, their only job was working on pro bono cases. They didn't work on other cases. They actually had this annual award that was named after one of the founding partners who started the pro bono committee. This was not just a Let's try to give back to the community and show up occasionally for Legal Aid Saturdays. This was a full-blown department with a budget and a mission. Number four, it just feels damn good to use your paralegal skills on something that is truly impacting lives in a positive way. 
If you work at a big defense firm like I did, or really any size firm, it can be challenging sometimes from that perspective. At least it was for me. Not all the time, but there were definitely some times when I would say to myself, I wish I could get the fulfillment like a teacher gets or a nurse gets when they get out of doing their work. Because I only ever worked on cases where we represented multi-million or multi-billion dollar companies trying to protect their corporate profits. So working on that pro bono case, it really helped with that. And number five, the new skills and experience was priceless. They let me take charge in a way that was at a much higher level than your typical civil litigation case. Now I get it that part of the reason was because the nonprofit that we were partnered with, yeah, they were understaffed. I didn't care the reason. The result was I got some great experience. And I learned a lot about the area of law that I had never been exposed to. And like I said, was never exposed to after that, but for that pro bono opportunity. And it was logistics. You know, I'd worked on these huge document productions and it was always at a law firm or they would come to our firm or we would go to the client's office. In this case, I had to logistically find a vendor who had the capability to come inside the prison with me and they would be copying as I was flagging and giving them things to do. And literally, like, how do you bring a big, huge copy machine inside a prison and make sure that there's no paraphernalia or any of that kind of stuff, right? So logistically, it was great in terms of problem solving and figuring out all of the different turning parts and things that could happen with a situation like that. So it was a really good experience for me. All right, like I always do on this podcast show, though, I want to give you some actionable strategies Well, I guess they're only actionable to you if I've convinced you that pro bono opportunities are good for a paralegal's career. Hopefully, I did. Actionable strategy number one. Find out if your firm has a pro bono committee or program. Maybe you've never heard about it because they typically focus on attorney pro bono hours. You won't know until you ask. For all you know, if you're a litigation paralegal, there could be a partner in the corporate practice group who could use some help on a pro bono project that she signed up for. I'd highly suggest that you reach outside your comfort zone to get exposure to other areas of law. If you're a real estate paralegal, try to find a pro bono project that could get you some exposure in litigation or corporate, or at least a different area of real estate, maybe the landlord-tenant area. Those would be easy to find at your local legal aid if you don't have a pro bono department. Number two, if your firm doesn't have any pro bono opportunities, check your local paralegal association. Even if you're not a member of that local paralegal association, they can tell you about potential pro bono opportunities that are in your area, or they can connect you directly to the local organizations that they know needs help. Number three, check your local legal aid society or maybe your local innocence project. If that doesn't interest you, maybe volunteer for the court's guardian ad litem program. I know several paralegals who do that and find it very fulfilling and rewarding. Or maybe think outside the box even more. If you're an animal lover, does your local shelter need help keeping up with their corporate filings? Does your local woman's shelter need help with some real estate transactions? Number four, if you do this, choose an area that's outside your comfort zone. 
If you're a litigation paralegal working in commercial litigation or business litigation, find something in family law or constitutional law or civil rights, or even something outside litigation entirely. You will learn so much. I remember being on a conference call with this paralegal who was working at the nonprofit, and man, she could rattle off constitutional case law and procedures like nothing I'd ever heard. I was so impressed. I knew none of that. And I guess number five would maybe be a bonus actionable strategy. If you know of some interesting pro bono opportunities, jump in the comments on the website page. You know, go to the main page for paralegal-bootcamp.com. Go all the way down to the bottom to the footer. You'll see useful links and you'll see the podcast page link there. Go there and share some ideas. If you're listening on Apple, Spotify, or Google, in the show notes, there's always a link to the episode website page for this particular episode. You can jump in there and comment there. All right. I love to hear about pro bono opportunities and the experience that it's getting for you. So also email me if that's easier for you. All right. That's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's show, hit the subscribe button in whatever platform you're listening. And please take a quick minute and leave a review of the podcast and share this episode with just one colleague or friend who you think would benefit from what we discussed today. Share the knowledge and the entire paralegal profession elevates. See you next week. Bye for now.